0: Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I hope you have had a good week and uh, thankful to see all of you here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Acts chapter six, Acts chapter six. We are gonna be covering a lot of ground this morning and uh, I'll explain here in just a little bit um, kind of one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to take this big chunk of scripture all together. Um, but suffice to say, we have been moving forward in the life of the church and seeing two kind of big ideas grow and develop over the last few weeks. The first is one of persecution from the outside. So as the church is growing, as the gospel is being proclaimed, as people are coming to faith, uh, people on the outside of that uh, are not too happy. Uh, the religious leaders, those who have power, those who have control and influence in uh, Jerusalem and in Israel are not too keen on Jesus being seen as the Messiah, as he being recognized as uh, the Son of God. And so the persecution against the church is increasing. We saw a couple of weeks ago the, the apostles were threatened, and then last week the apostles were beaten and told, do not teach in this name anymore. And today we will see that persecution continue to increase and come to a climax, which we'll talk about next week uh, when I'm out of town, when I'm out of the country, and Noah Moon, one of our pastoral interns, will uh, teach to you from the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 8. So we have outside problems and we have inside problems, right? So, So last week we talked about Ananias and Sapphira and the fact that just because we're believers and we're a part of a local church does not mean that We are freed from all things related to sin. In fact, we still have sin that wars against us in our own hearts, and it leads us to do all kinds of things that produce division and factiousness and frustrations in the life of the church. And what we saw in the story of Ananias and Sapphira is God is still holy and wants his church to be holy. So this morning, we're going to begin with another issue arising from within the local church. Hebrew-speaking Jews who had become believers and Greek-speaking Jews who had become believers are now believers together. So you have the Hebrew-speaking believers and the Greek-speaking believers called Hellenists. And we'll see how the leaders of the church deal with a problem between these two cultures, ethnicities, ideas within the church. And then next, we're going to see the story of Stephen and return to the outside persecution towards the believers as they proclaim the gospel. We'll see him in three scenarios this morning. Serving the church, preaching the word, and then standing before the religious leaders. As I said, the persecution that began earlier in the book of Acts is going to come to a climax. Because we're going to see very clearly that these Jewish leaders ought to know better that Jesus is the Messiah and that they have rejected the one that they have been waiting for. So let's read Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we do pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would anoint my words to be full of the truth, uh, that, Lord, you would uh, so work in the lives of our students and, and leaders, God, to hear the word of truth and be transformed by it as we think about Lord, serving and ministering in the life of the church and the story of the Bible according to your servant, Stephen, help us to see and know you as we study your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two, two stories, two scenes this morning. Story number one, that is the story of servants rising up, or we see servants rise up. So, so Jews and Gentiles here in Acts chapter six were not on good terms. Just to give you the historical context, Jews and Gentiles Not on good terms at all. And the suspicion from the Hebrew-speaking Jews who became believers towards the Greek-speaking Jews who became believers, that suspicion was real. Now, the power of the gospel, we know, has the power to overcome any kind of barrier, ethnic barriers, cultural barriers, even barriers related to language. But these believers who were once living apart and now living together still fought hard against these old habits. So the 12 apostles of the church saw this inner division, that the Hellenists were not being uh, rightly seen in the daily distribution, that their widows were not receiving the food that they needed to receive. And they saw that this problem was something worthy of a general gathering. That is all hands on deck, a a full staff meeting, if you will. And, And what we know from the book of Acts is that thousands and thousands of families, have become believers. And so what we need to recognize is that the apostles took this threat of division incredibly seriously. Factiousness and division will poison the people of God. And if we allow it to fester and grow, it will cause great harm to the people of God. So we see in this story, the apostles telling the congregation, telling the members of the body of Christ, choose from among you seven men, choose from among you believers who are wise and spirit-filled and mature, and let them serve in light of this need that we have perceived. So we see a clarity of role being teased out in the life of the church. The leaders give oversight and direction, mainly through proclaiming the word And prayer, that was the apostles' defense, right? We don't need to serve tables because we have this other charge to do. That is to proclaim the word and to pray. Now, these servants who were chosen are seven lead servants who meet the tangible needs of people. And then there's the congregation who chooses those from among them to lead and serve. So we have three ideas going on. We have leaders who provide oversight over the church through prayer and word ministry. We have these leaders from among the congregation who serve various needs, and we have the congregation who chooses from among them who those leaders are. So I hope you see maybe an analog to our own church, that we have pastors, deacons, and church members, and we function largely the same way. We get that functioning from texts like Acts chapter 6. So the church chooses seven men, spirit-filled, mature, with wisdom and good reputations to serve this need. And what may be lost on us when we first read this are the names, names like Stephen and Philip, which to us don't really mean that much, but to them would mean everything because all seven of these names are Greek names. All seven of these names are names of Hellenists, of Greek-speaking believers, the ones who were overlooked in the first place. So there's something to that, right? That out of this lack of balance in service, the church recognizes the lead for servants and leaders to reflect the congregation accurately. So then verse 7 gives us an overview of where the church was. And in that, we're reminded of some of the major themes of Acts. The word is expanding. Sinners are coming to faith. Believers are being added to the church. The spirit is at work to proclaim the risen Lord Jesus. And in all of it, even in what's to come, God is sovereign. Even the Jewish priests were coming to faith in Christ. That leads us to the meat of our time together this morning. And that is the story of Stephen. So let's look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So before we go any further, if you write notes, the second idea for this morning is, is Stephen bears witness. Stephen bears witness. And there may be some folks in that side room. If someone could just open that partition, that'd be helpful. I don't want to make anybody feel like they're in a jail cell. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. So one of the seven, Stephen, is clearly more than a servant. This one who is seen as wise and spirit-filled and respectable by all, he's out proclaiming the gospel to the Greek-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem. That would make sense. That's where he would normally be. And some of those Jews disagreed with his message, but it says they were unable to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So, rather than relent... And believe the truth according to the spirit that is within Stephen, these Jews concocted a plan to have him arrested and neutralized. They lied, they schemed, and they set up false witnesses among the Jewish leaders. And their claim was that Stephen was blaspheming against Moses, against God against this holy place that is Jerusalem and the temple, uh, the, 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 the temple uh, strategy of how God's people ought to worship him and blaspheming against the law. They thought Jesus was destroying Moses and the institutions of their faith. But as we read in verse 15, Stephen stood before them with the face of an angel. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Luke can say when he writes to us, Stephen had the face of an angel? It's most likely a tangible brightness of the glory of God, much like what was seen on Moses' face in the Sinai event of the book of Exodus. When Moses came down from the mountain, they made him put a veil over his face because his face shone with the glory of God. It's also similar, yet much smaller, than the shining of the glory seen on Jesus at his transfiguration. So Luke is cluing us in to say, whatever Stephen is about to say is revelation from God, because the glory of God is shining on him. So we're going to read Stephen's speech, which is Acts 7, 1 through 53. That's a lot of verses but I think the most important thing we do when we gather together is hear the word of God read because it's in the word that there is power. So my comments and my editorials and my preaching about the word is in service to the word. So, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to buckle up and, and hang on and try to understand as we read, what is Stephen doing? What is he saying in response to these charges that he's blaspheming against Moses, against God, against the law, against the holy place. Think through what he's doing. Remember, what we've seen in the book of Acts up to this point is that Acts is teaching us how to rightly read the Bible, which for these believers was the Old Testament. So remember the accusations against Stephen as you think of of his response And think about how Stephen is reading the Bible. It's a long passage, but we can do it. All right, let's read together, starting in verse one. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land, from your kindred, And go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there and into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit... "'Joseph made himself known to his brothers, "'and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. "'And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father "'and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. "'And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, "'he and our fathers, "'and they were carried back to Shechem "'and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought "'for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. "'But as the time of the promise drew near, "'which God had granted to Abraham, "'the people increased and multiplied in Egypt.' An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. In this speech, Stephen shows us a few really important things. First, Stephen shows us that he understands Abraham, Moses, Israel, David, and the one whom they all pointed to, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who would bless the nations and speak God's words and rule as king. He understands the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to know God in the one whom he has sent, who is Jesus. Second, Stephen shows that from the beginning, God's own people have consistently and violently rejected God's messengers to them. So much so that they run after false gods, idols, when the one true God is speaking to them. Moses and the law is contrasted with the golden calf and the false gods of Canaan, like Moloch and Rephon and the others. And even though they had the tent of witness, the tabernacle, and then the temple, they missed it. Because God is not confined to a place. He's come to Israel through his messengers and ultimately through his one and only son, Jesus. Jesus. And they rejected that too. And now, God continues to go to his people here in Acts chapter 7 through the body of Christ, through the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But they continue to reject him. These religious leaders are the ones from whom a whole line of people are known by their rejection. Their rejection of Moses, their rejection of the temple, their rejection of the law, their rejection of God's prophets, and all of the things that they were pointing to. In Stephen's speech, we see that Stephen is not the one who is blaspheming against Moses. He is not the one who is blaspheming against God. He is not the one who is blaspheming against this holy place or the law. In fact, among the religious leaders, he is the only one who understands these things. He's the only one who is not blaspheming Moses, because he actually understands what Moses came to do. He understands the words that God spoke through Moses. He understands the purpose of the law. He understands the words of the prophets. Students, if you and I read the Old Testament and come away with the kind of attitude of the religious leaders, or if we come away with a kind of excitement that we understand Levitical law codes or if we come away feeling superior because we understand the timeline of what happens in the Old Testament, but we don't have a grasp on the wonder and the glory of the gospel that is promised on every page, we have missed the point. And Stephen stands before this crowd, before this group of the most knowledgeable Jews in Jerusalem and calls them stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, who always resist the Holy Spirit. Now next week, you're going to hear from Noah and from the end of Acts 7 and the beginning of Acts 8, the murderous response of these Religious leaders, they are blind and deaf to seeing and hearing the glory of Christ. But what is your response? What is your response? Do you believe that Jesus really is the promised one of Scripture? Do you believe that he is the Messiah, the one who was promised? Or will you resist him? Will you reject him like the religious leaders reject him? Will you continue to deny the Holy Spirit as these leaders continue to deny the Holy Spirit? Or will you surrender? Will you lay down your life? Will you lay down your weapons? Will you lay down your arguments? Will you lay down your self-righteousness? Will you lay those things down And come to the one who offers mercy and grace. Students, there are only two ways to live. And what the book of Acts does a marvelous, spirit-inspired job of doing is it shows us with great clarity that fact. There are only two ways to live. You can sugarcoat it and describe it in different ways, But at the end of the day, your life will be based, founded on these questions. Do you live your life under the lordship of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, or not? Do you walk in the fullness of God's Holy Spirit who indwells you by faith or not? Do you believe that God's word to you is God's revelation of himself for you or not? Do you live a life of turning from your sins and running to Christ for your salvation or not? You can think of all other kinds of questions. There are plenty of things that we wish the Bible would be more clear on The Bible is clear here on what is most important. So what is your response? Will you trust that Jesus is the one who offers life and salvation and grace and mercy? And if you already are making that decision, if you already say, I am a believer, I'm a Christian, I I love Jesus, I've turned from my sin, I, I believe that he's the son of God, I believe he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and hell and the grave, that he's risen and seated at the right hand of glory. If I believe those things, then how is Stephen's speech instructive to you? I think it can be instructive in two ways. First, Stephen has a boldness that is the result of chapter after chapter of the church praying for boldness. Do you have that kind of boldness? Do you pray those kinds of prayers? Would you be able, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, to to speak a word in a difficult place in defense of the truth. That's the first way. The second way is Stephen very clearly knows his Bible. I mean, he's saying all of this off the top of his head. He's saying all this, not just latched to scripture in front of him because he's hidden it in his heart. So if you're a believer, do you have the boldness that Stephen has as a result of the prayers that Stephen prays? And do you have a a working knowledge of God's word that would show the world that you treasure this word like gold? Because if you do, you will begin to see things And you will begin to understand things about God and his word. You will begin to realize things about his love for you and his care for you that will directly feed into that boldness that we see in Stephen. And my hope for all of us is that we would stand firm in our faith and proclaim the good news of the gospel, even in hard places like we see Stephen doing, even if it costs us, even if it costs us dearly. What Stephen is going to show us next week is that the cost is worth it.